Channel V6 Podcast. I'm your host, David Gale. The Channel V6 Podcast covers all the unique and diverse topics that matter most to you, the Uinta Basin resident. Subscribe to listen to in-depth conversations about the local issues that affect us all. Today's guest is Ricky Renko Browning, president of the Utah Petroleum Association, here to discuss Utah's energy industry outlook. And before we jump over and have her introduce herself, first let's uh, hear a quick message from our primary sponsor today, which is Larson Haslam Dental. At Larson Haslam Dental, their amazing team is dedicated to not only improving your oral health, but to also restore and maintain your overall health. Are you unhappy with your dental insurance, or maybe you don't have dental insurance? Well, Larson Haslam Dental has the solution. It's the Larson Haslam Savings Plan. You can call to discuss the details and see how much you can save with this great plan. Larson Haslam Dental has the most state-of-the-art equipment in our area, providing you and your entire family with all your dental needs. They offer implants, implant-supported dentures, root canals, same-day crowns, and a laser that treats small decay spots and children without getting numb. Larson Haslam Dental is a comprehensive dental office that is happy to treat your whole family from young to old. They also have the most fun and best staff around. You can call now and mention you heard the ad on the channel v6 podcast and they'll schedule a free consultation to see if the larson haslam savings plan is a good fit for you call 781-2729 or go online at larsonhaslamdental.com once again joining us is ricky Renko browning the president of utah petroleum association thank you for joining us coming out uh i'm assuming that um the association main office is uh probably in the salt lake region that would be correct. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for the opportunity. So I uh, I had a beautiful drive through Strawberry this morning. Happy to do it when it's not full of snow. I know, because it's it seems like it's a rare occasion, especially in spring, when you can find a gap where there's not snowing over, over across Strawberry. Um, maybe you can start by just telling us a little bit about um, who you are as far as your position with the Utah Petroleum Association and what exactly the, the association is. Sure, happy to. So Utah Petroleum Association, or UPA, uh, has been around since 1958, and we represent all aspects of the oil and gas industry. So upstream production, exploration, through midstream transport, all the way down to refining of uh, finished products. So the five Salt Lake refineries, as well as the refinery up in Sinclair, our members, and then just about anything else that touches it, upstream, downstream, midstream, or around the edges. And our goal is really to educate and to advocate on behalf of the industry and to be that voice to explain and to uh, help promote all of the good that we're doing here in the state of Utah and more broadly as well. How much of Utah's GDP uh, or otherwise is based off of uh, energy, specifically oil and gas? Yeah, we certainly play an enormous role, whether you're looking at GDP nationally, statewide, locally, whether you're looking in terms of education support, whether you're looking in terms of infrastructure support. So, for example, in local and state taxes, we provide about $33 million just from the extraction industry. And then mm. one thing that we want to talk about today on federal lands is the amount um, of revenue that comes back to the local community. So about 50% of the royalty from federal lands production comes back to the, the local communities, uh, often through CIB or Community Impact, Impact Board funding. And so I'm sure that your, your listeners are well aware that there's been uh, a lot of policy shifts in the energy space mm -hmm. with the Biden administration coming in. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of what that means for the UNA Basin and the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, you know, this past year, there was a, a 
big downturn in oil and gas because of COVID and, and its effects on our nation. Um, and then as soon as we're, it feels like at least we're, we're coming out of that now. But of course, we have another a new administration with uh, um, a different policy than our previous uh, administration. I'm wondering, um, maybe in order to set the groundwork uh, kind of uh, contextually, how was the energy industry in Utah prior to COVID? And then we can work into what uh, the new administration looks like. Sure. So really big picture. Utah is actually the ninth largest producer for oil, 13th largest producer for natural gas. So certainly significant in the picture of U.S. production. COVID, you know, 2020 was a very challenging year for a lot of sectors, but particularly for the energy sector and for the oil and gas sector. Um, for the first time in history, in April of 2020, we saw negative $40 per barrel oil prices. Um, so, so coming out of that on some really, really challenging times. But if you fast forward about six months from there, we saw oil prices starting to recover to near pre-COVID levels. It's a very resilient industry. You know, everything that we do, everything that we touch, everything that we're wearing has some oil product in it, most likely for the most part. So I think there's a lot of uh, misconception about how oil and gas is important to fuel our cars and maybe mm -hmm. we can just drive electric vehicles and that goes away. But it, there's a much more complex, nuanced story to tell behind how oil and gas impacts our day-to-day -day life from pharmaceuticals to uh, PPE during COVID, for example, and keeping first responders moving, grocery store stocks, uh, grocery stores uh, stocked and, mm -hmm. and shelves full. So yes, coming off of COVID, COVID, it was it was a challenging year. The industry had just started to recover. And then we saw a pretty sweeping change in federal administration and federal policy. Uh, and I don't think anyone was surprised at the direction. I think we all understood that there was going to be uh, a pretty significant change coming. But I will say that um, the swiftness of those policy changes um, and the, the efficiency with which the administration has moved forward has been very impressive. Whether you agree with those policy changes or not, it has been a, a very impressive start to, to this administration. They, uh, yeah, it seems like uh, President Biden has has um, kind of uh, staked a flag in the ground uh, as far as the direction that that he sees for for oil and gas, um, specifically there on in the second day of his presidency, coming out with executive orders uh, about uh, the pausing of uh, federal leases, uh, and and I'd like to get into that uh, in a second, but first, just generally speaking. Um, Coming out of COVID, I mean, not that we're out of it yet, but but certainly there there is an upward trend. Uh, it, it appears, and, and you'll have to correct me on this or not, as far as uh, Americans feeling a little more uh, willing to travel, a yeah. little more willing to get back to normal. There are certainly still um, mandates in places in different states for different reasons that. Uh, but you know, with vaccinations uh, on the rise and and the percentage of the population rising, having been vaccinated, I imagine that uh, we're still heading that direction. Do you see that affecting Utah uh, when it comes to uh, our, our energy industry and and what's what's happening here? Certainly, Utah's in a really unique perspective where we have a very integrated industry where our fuel is produced here, it is transported to refineries in the state, and finished product is made here. We also, while we do have some finished product pipelines that come in and a very limited amount of crude that comes in, um, we're almost like an, an 
energy island to an extent mm. where it's, you know, very limited additional um, oil and gas coming into the state. And so one of the things we saw coming out of COVID was actually a faster recovery um, of our refinery utilization rates, for example, of how much they're running. Are they at 50% capacity, 70% capacity, 90% capacity? Um, we saw a, a faster recovery here in uh, in our region and in Utah specifically than, than we did nationally because of that very kind of integrated um, statewide system between upstream and downstream. Jet fuel certainly was the slowest to recover nationwide mm. and in Utah as we waited for consumer confidence to come back, for business travel to come back. But we are seeing that. That's exactly right. I don't think that we're we're 100% back to where we were. You know, a lot of market analysts that are a lot smarter than me have crystal balls that are, are less cloudy than mine say we may never get back to quite the production levels we were pre-COVID, but we're getting very close. Things are getting much more stable. Do you, do you see any difference in that recovery um, when it comes to the refinery side of things versus the exploration side? Because I know out here in eastern Utah, um, we're really heavy on the production side, uh, on, on the extraction. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, Utah is interesting because we've got a very high quality crude that comes out of the Uinta Basin. Um, very desirable product, really low in sulfur, which is great. It makes it very good for pharmaceuticals. Um, for all sorts of different industries, for, for lube oils, for industrial purposes, very high-end product. The challenge with our oil is that it doesn't work in a pipeline. It actually sets up like candle wax at room temperature. And so all of that oil is trucked north to Salt Lake. We don't put it in a pipeline and send it off anywhere else. So yes, there is some crude that comes into the Salt Lake refining sector, which meant that even if the basin is perhaps lagging in recovery a little bit, there's a little bit of incoming crude that the refineries could kind of outpace that recovery on, but not a significant amount. They usually tend to move pretty much hand in hand. There's a mm -hmm. Very strong linkage. What is important for the basin in terms of recovery is important for the Salt Lake refining market as well, because the two are so tightly linked and integrated. And I would say that, you know, in in those Salt Lake refineries in the last couple of years have made some really significant investments to be able to essentially eat more waxy crude. Okay. Um, every refinery is geared for a specific crude slate. Um, you know, it has a very specific diet that it likes to eat. Right. And our Salt Lake refineries um, really like to eat waxy crude and they depend on that. Not 100 percent, but quite mm. a bit. So there's a lot of a lot of ties there. And so do you see that there is a recovery happening in the basin? Definitely. We are starting to see rigs coming back. We're seeing development plans moving forward. We're seeing, um, you know, permits being put in. Things are looking so much better than they were, I would say, six months ago. Um, still, you know, we've got a little ways to go. We want to see that oil price stay consistent. Mm -hmm. um, but but we are on a strong path to recovery, yes. Okay. Um, let's jump over then and, and talk a little bit about um, the executive orders that uh, came out the, the end of January. And, and just for our audiences, um, because we have the time and I think it's important. Maybe we'll uh, we'll start by just explaining what we know about what those executives orders were and, and how they affect or don't affect different parts of oil and gas. Um, and so uh, from your perspective, you, yeah. you tell me, yeah. um, what, what did those executive orders look like? 
So there have been a lot of executive orders, and I'm going to just have a little side side topic here for one second. I found a really interesting stat this morning when I was driving down. I heard it on their radio that was looking at um, presidents and executive orders. So mm-hmm. looking at uh, the last couple of presidents and how many executive orders they've issued by April 15th, so last week um, in their first year. President Biden so far had issued 49 executive orders. Um, Trump before him had issued 36 at that point in his presidency, Obama 34 and Bush 12. So, you know, I start out by saying that they've been very efficient and it's been impressive and executive orders or secretarial orders from some of the most important departments and divisions have been um, the tool that they've been using to implement policy and very effectively Mm -hmm. and very swiftly. So the most important executive order that we've seen come out so far was just a couple of days into the president's um, into the president's tenure. And it did a number of things um, that the big headline is that it provided um, they call it a pause. I would call it a moratorium on leasing of federal lands. Beyond that, it also called for a review of federal leasing policies, looking about um, the social cost of carbon and incorporating that into the permitting process, um, including higher royalty rates. We don't know what those are going to look like yet, but increasing the royalty rate, uh, a goal to conserve 30% of our public lands and waters by 2030. This is called the 30 by 30 initiative, uh, as well as fully removing carbon from our power sector entirely as as a goal that was included in that executive order. And again, you can imagine with with 49 executive orders issued already, there are several others that definitely touch on our industry that talk about um, lending to fossil fuel industries and environmental justice and social justice, um, which are all very noble and important goals to address, um, but are also being used in this case as as tools to really push a policy agenda towards an energy transition. Okay, um, so there there's a lot of stuff in there that that we can talk about. And starting with this this pause, this moratorium, um, you said that there was uh, an accompanying um, study that was being done um, as far as um, uh, carbon goes, uh, or, or were those two separate things? I, so my first question is th- this pause. Um, what exactly is it? It's a pause on federal leases. Yes. No new federal leases will be issued until this pause is lifted. Okay. And then what is, for now, according to the executive order, the timeline for that pause? What a fantastic question, if only we knew. <laughs> okay. So indefinitely. Correct. All right. Um, I know that there there is this comprehensive review that they're doing, but of course, there's doesn't seem like there's, there's a, a necessity, a necessarily a, an end to that review, uh, other than they need to figure out what the the impact is climate or otherwise. So um, what is really affected then? So in Utah, unfortunately, we are going to be impacted by this more than a lot of other states. The the Western U.S. is going to be most heavily impacted, but but Utah particularly. In the state of Utah, we've got about two-thirds of our lands that are federally managed lands. Um, That's a very high proportion. And for oil and gas producing lands, an even higher proportion. So I said that Utah is the ninth largest oil producer and the 13th largest natural gas producer. Mm -hmm. But if we look only at federal lands, we are the fifth largest oil producer on federal lands and the fourth largest natural gas producer on federal lands. So we're going to be impacted pretty heavily. 
And it's not just not being able to get new leases or having significant delays in extending leases or having a higher cost of production because of a higher royalty rate or all of the various Mm -hmm. permitting reviews. Those are all very direct impacts that we should expect to see. The the added challenge on top of that is that we have a very checkerboard land pattern here. And what I mean by that is we have a parcel of federal land next to a parcel of state land next to a parcel of private land. And when you're developing large oil and gas projects, you need to be able to to, to, to basically combine large land areas, right? Okay. The, the oil and gas under the ground doesn't really see those borders that we create on top of it, right? right? right. And so there's a real concern about how are we going to be able to produce on tribal land or on state land, for example, if there's co-mingled federal production in there, if we've got, okay. you know, some federal parcels in there, or, you know, the Western U.S. also has a lot of split estates where the surface may be owned by um, by the state and the minerals are federally owned. Interesting. Very unclear how this is all going to work and how far ranging those impacts are going to be. I will say that there's been one study done so far, um, an independent study done by the University of Wyoming that looked at what would be the cost just from one year, just one year, if it takes them one year to do this review of no new federal leases. That's not looking at increasing royalty rates or permitting or anything like that, just from um, a pause of one year of leasing. And they're projecting for the state of Utah, $169 million in lost GDP, hmm. 1,400 job losses. So very, very significant impact because we do have such a large proportion of federal lands. That's interesting. I didn't realize the the patchwork scenario. Um, and so I imagine, because my, my next question was, was on those lands that aren't affected by uh, federal leasing because it's not federal land, like tribal land or otherwise, um, it, do you see a, a push in that direction? But what it sounds like is that because of the, the planning that's required and the patchwork of, of land that that may not be an alternative way to go for exploration? It depends how long this goes on for. Um, it's a big question mark. So we are seeing more more momentum moving towards tribal lands, for example, because you've got larger blocks of those lands. Okay. Um, state lands are going to be pretty heavily impacted as well because those are the single sections that lead um, really heavily to that checkerboard effect. If you look at a map of the state of Utah, small sections intermingled with lots of federal land. So yes, you are going to start to see more production on tribal lands, more production on state lands. But if this continues for you know a four-year review period, right. that's going to get to be very, very problematic. Now, I I had, I had read somewhere that some companies um, had kind of seen the writing on the wall and uh, had started to, um, for lack of a better term, uh, pocket all of these leases. They tried to get as many as they could um, beforehand. Have you heard of any of that? Well, first of all, does that, can they still do that? If, if I have a bunch of leases that I have uh, been given, and I'm not going to start working on those leases for a couple of years, that that's still okay. Uh, and if so, have you heard of, of any of that happening here in Utah? I mean, have we buffered ourselves at all? We have buffered ourselves, um, and I think that that's that's a wise and prudent business decision, right? If you're a business owner, you're not going to to make a significant investment in a new plant without knowing if you have a customer base or if you have a supply chain to provide mm-hmm. to you. Um, 
I would say the other side of that, though, is that a lease is not a production guarantee. There is inherent risk in the geology. Is there enough resource there? Is it economically um, you know, viable for production? So just because you lease an area does not guarantee that you're going to produce it, even if you can. Mm -hmm. um, that's a risk that the lessee takes on in their economic planning. Um, in terms of, uh, is that happening in Utah? Yes, we saw some of that happen, certainly. Um, but whether you're going to be able to use those leases or not is a good question. So, you know, leases have a timeline and then the associated permit that you need to produce called an APD uh, also has a timeline. Those APDs are usually five years. What we're hearing from our member companies right now is APDs that are going to expire soon that need to be extended. Um, they're struggling to get those extended. And that's a, a normal course of action that your you know, local vernal field office, your BLM field office would do. Um, at the beginning of the Biden administration, there was a secretarial order that put a 60-day freeze on a number of actions, including issuing new APDs, extending APDs, um, approving NEPA, which is the environmental review that's required for basically any kind of development, um, issuing new right-of-ways, issuing road decisions, basically put a pause on allowing the local offices to approve any kind of land-related activity. The day before that pause was set to lift, that 60-day pause was set to lift, a new memo came out from the Department of Interior that was an instructional memo uh, to their field offices basically saying, for a lot of these things, we still want you to go through us, even though you've historically made those decisions. So it, it really does raise concern about the certainty. How do you plan for the future? How do you invest into your production, not knowing if your lease is going to be extended? If we're going to have additional permitting requirements, I mean, it already takes years to get, you know, NEPA clearances or get through different kinds of cultural or archaeological or other permit requirements. If it takes years and you're already on a time clock and you don't know if your permit's going to be extended, mm -hmm. that's a big challenge in terms of making a business decision and investment into this basin. Yeah, a, a lot of risk suddenly comes into play. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, these uh, companies that, that do the exploration, how far in advance are their business plans? Any idea? Years. <laughs> yeah. Years. I mean, years, obviously, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, Seeing something like this and 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 not knowing um, how how long it's going to be before any kind of report comes back, um, it it sure seems like this is a bleak situation to be in. Again, it depends how long this goes on for. I would say that we we shouldn't panic. I certainly don't want to you know have have the fire alarm going off here. We do. We do have production um, that is, is shifting to tribal lands. We do have some production that is already ongoing that will be able to continue. But it does really raise a risk and a challenge about our ability to continue to supply the fuel that we need from our local resources here in the state of Utah. So today, about 56% of oil and gas wells are on federal lands. Um, what that's going to look like in the future, we'll see. That's going to go down. But the challenge is just because you don't allow production on federal lands or you make it so difficult and so expensive that the natural response is not to produce on federal lands, that doesn't change the demand side of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. So 
we still need as much fuel today as we needed, you know, in December, for example, before these executive orders took took effect. So for the state of Utah, it's really challenging when we've got more than half of our current wells on federal land and we don't have a very solid investment case for those wells today. So what that does is it drives investment to other basins. Best case scenario is it drives it out of state. Worst case scenario is it drives it to other countries um, that are large producers like Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. like, you know, the OPEC countries like Russia, who don't have the same environmental standards that we have, that don't have the same human rights standards that we have, um, and who often are not geopolitical allies. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very challenging to see what we're gaining from this. I think that... Um, you know, there's a real risk that moving production outside of the U.S., which is really an innovator and a leader in terms of technology, in terms of clean tech, in terms of um, regulatory environment, could be really counterproductive to what those objectives um, that that are driving that policy are trying to do in terms of climate change, for example, Mm -hmm. but have such broader impacts that we're not even contemplating in terms of what does that mean for our state's energy prices? Um, What does that mean for the price of basically anything for your iPhone, for your, you know, your next new pair of skis? Um, But more importantly, what does that mean for our energy security? And if we no longer are net energy exporters, what does that mean for our geopolitical position and in the world and a number of other objectives that that we as the United States of America want to lead out on when we're no longer a a world energy leader? There's a lot of broad implications here. Are are you seeing... Uh, any difference in recovery between um, our state and other Western states versus those that aren't so dependent on federal leases that have more public land? So New Mexico is a very good example of this. Um, The same very prolific oil and gas formation that sits under New Mexico also sits under Texas, spans the border, right? Mm -hmm. Again, these these oil doesn't know that we create these false lines. Right. You are seeing um, pretty drastic movement of rigs from New Mexico to Texas because that same formation is on private land in Texas and federal land in New Mexico. Mm. You're already seeing capital moving. You're seeing dollars leave New Mexico. And New Mexico is in a particularly challenging position because one quarter of all of their education funding comes from oil and gas. Their state's budget is highly dependent on the oil and gas industry. Um, So that's, that's really been the tip of the spear when we look at what kinds of implications this policy can have and unintended consequences. I'm wondering, um, you know, we've been talking about exploration and, and, and new permits, but does do these executive orders affect any of the other activities that uh, surround oil and gas or is it just new new production? It's going to touch on a lot of things. As I said, they're going to put a price on on carbon or that's that's a stated goal. Um, there's a lot of work towards environmental and social justice. We don't know what that looks like, what that's going to cost. Um, there's been efforts to try and penalize lending agencies um, that have lended to fossil fuel companies. Hmm. So hard to see where this is all going to fall out, but but certainly some pretty broad impacts could be in front of us still. Wow. All right, we're going to take a a really quick break and uh, let everybody know about our other sponsors that have allowed us to have this podcast today, starting with Carl's Carpet in 
Carl's Carpet is the Unibasin's premier installer of flooring, window coverings, and custom organizers. They've been family-owned and operated for over 50 years. For a free estimate, go see them today in Roosevelt or on the web at Carl's with a K. It's carlscarpet.com. Also, the Channel V6 mobile app. Channel V6 has delivered high school sports, local news, and community events to Basin residents for years. Did you know that everything offered on the website is available in the palm of your hand through the Channel V6 mobile app? Watch sports and other events live, review them on demand at your convenience, all on your mobile app. The Channel V6 mobile app is available for iOS and Android. All right, uh, getting back to it. Um, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to see. <laughs> You know, we have you here today to talk about our the Utah's energy outlook, and so maybe, maybe, um, what what do you see uh, aside from this pause, which it appears, based off of our conversation, is uh, a real um, a detriment to growth in Utah compared to states that don't have as many federal uh, as much um, uh, on federal land uh, the the energy resources. So, uh, do, is there, do you have any good news? Do you need an upside? Yeah, I'm looking for upside. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly. You know, I think that that the oil and gas industry at the heart is really a technology and an innovation industry. Um, and there have been multiple proof points of that along the way. So if you look at what happened with the shale revolution, go back to 2005, go back 15 years, which is when when shale revolution really took hold, we saw massive amounts of oil and gas being unlocked. And it really changed the dynamic and the fundamental of how America stacks up in, in world politics, but it, it also did amazing things for local communities, right? I think there's a real opportunity here. The stated goals of the administration are to reduce greenhouse gases to, to tackle the, the climate challenge. So if we look at the actual data, the U.S. is the world leader in climate reductions. World leader. In that 15-year period since the shale revolution, when we started producing significantly more oil and natural gas, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions actually went down about 10%. And the portion of that that came from the energy sector was almost 30% reduction in greenhouse gases. So I, I do think that we've got a great opportunity to allow the industry to innovate. That didn't come about. Those reductions in greenhouse gases didn't come about because of heavy-handed policy that, for example, um, put a moratorium on, on coal leases or coal being used for energy production. And it didn't dump billions or trillions of dollars of incentives into the natural gas industry like we're talking about doing for, for green energy and, and new technologies. It allowed the market to work and it allowed companies um, to, to respond to market forces and use the technology that they had to do really impressive things. So we've proven that we can do that before. I think we need to have the opportunity to prove that we can do that again. And I'm sure we can. We have our own local success story in that regard, um, not basin related, but certainly Utah oil and gas related with tier three fuels. So for example, you know, the Wasatch Front has a real air quality challenge. Mm -hmm. um, PM 2.5 is a problem. Um, 
we were able to voluntarily uh, have today four of the five refineries, soon we'll have all five of the five uh, refineries, producing tier three fuels, which is the equivalent in a tier three vehicle of taking three out of four cars off the road. Hmm. That is a massive improvement in our air quality and a big reason why we've been able to come back into attainment with federal standards on PM 2.5. There wasn't a mandate that required the refineries to do that. They developed technology and they made the commitment because of the, they recognized the importance and that it was the right thing to do for the Salt Lake Airshed. The, the challenge with that is that we need a seat at the table, right? Um, it's been it's been really challenging for the industry to even have a voice in this to say, hey, let us help. We're, we're not your adversary. We're not the enemy. We're actually here to help. We're innovators. Let's figure this out together. Let's sit down and identify what the real problem is. What do you really want us to do? And, you know, we'll roll our sleeves up and we'll get it done. But that conversation isn't being had today. Hmm. So so the upside is we're we're a put your shoulder to the wheel kind of people. We come up with better ways of doing things. Uh, we innovate and that innovation typically leads to improvement for everybody, not necessarily just the industry. Um, but that the climate, uh, political or otherwise, it makes it difficult for conversations to be had. Completely agree. I think that it has gotten so politicized that we're making short-term, ill-informed decisions um, because of those politics rather than sitting down together. I mean, President Biden, I remember watching his inaugural speech and I, I can't even remember how many times I counted the word unity. So let's find that. Let's find that unity. Let's sit down and actually have a conversation about what we can do if we work together. Let's not export our technology. Let's not, you know, export our energy to other countries. And there's there's room for all of the above energy. You know, there's this false narrative uh, in two different areas, this false narrative that you can't have green energy and still have fossil energy. Hmm. Um, those two things go hand in hand. Where you see uh, more renewables, you also see more gas-based power production because it acts as the backup. It acts as the bridge. Sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing. I'm sure everyone's heard that a million times, but it's still true today. We still don't have large-scale battery storage. We don't have grid-scale battery storage. And we have a very um, we have a very old power grid. The power grid is the largest machine on the on the planet. It's old and it's not quite capable of keeping up with trying to flip a switch today to move from oil and gas to renewable mm -hmm. energy. And natural gas serves as that kind of backbone and that buffer to allow an increase in renewable energy. The other false narrative that I think we're hearing much too often, and I think Utah is the perfect example to, to counter on, is that we either care about our planet and our environment, or we care about our economy and our energy industry. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Let's look at Utah. We are a significant energy, energy state, and not just oil and gas, but but plenty of coal and other critical minerals as well. We have a long mining history in the state as well. We also have buckling infrastructure because we love our national parks and our beautiful recreation opportunities to death, as does everyone else. We have a booming tourism economy, a booming outdoor rec economy. We have five national uh, parks. We have national monuments. We have tons of state parks. 
Uh, we've got about 40% of our, our um, kind of federal or protected areas that are already under some form of conservation. And yet we still are a robust, thriving energy state. You can have both of those. And Utah is the perfect case of showing that both of those two things can, can, see, can succeed and they're not mutually exclusive. So, you know, we just again this year were ranked as the number one state uh, economy in the nation. That's a ranking that we've enjoyed for several years. That is underpinned by low energy prices because we have these resources that we are able to produce locally here in the state. Well, if if part of the issue of us making progress at this time is this idea of, of, of false narratives and being on one side or the other, not and not understanding that they're not mutually exclusive. How do you how do you fix something like that in, in this climate? So one of the things that UPA is doing is we have just launched launched an initiative called Utah Energy United. Um, you can go to our website, utahpetroleum.org. You'll see it up on the top banner, really easy sign up. And what we're trying to do is to collect voices all sorts of voices. Oil and gas employees, great. But beyond that, let's talk about the secondary um, folks. Those are you know, people that are direct contractors to the oil and gas industry. You may not work for a producer, but you know, you've got a contract. Maybe you're a waller, water hauler. Maybe you, know, you provide mud or drill fluids. And then tertiary as well. So the grocery store benefits because you've got a booming economy because of your oil and gas base. Hotels, cafes, um, schools certainly uh, are, are heavily impacted by the, the financial support that they receive from the oil and gas industry. And we're looking to try and tap into um, that silent majority that really understands the importance of this industry. And I don't care if you're red or blue or purple or anything in between. Energy should not be a political issue. Energy is is too often co-opted by by the right and the left as a political issue, but it's fundamental to our existence. It's fundamental to our economy. It's fundamental uh, to our families. If you look at countries that have high rates of poverty, high rates of uh, low childhood education, high rates of uh, discrimination or, or low literacy rates for girls, they're also countries that have energy poverty. They don't have those energy resources and that impacts them in a myriad of different ways. So what we're trying to do is use Utah Energy United to collect voices, um, not just my voice, not just our, our members and their employees' voices, but anyone that cares about energy and that is willing to stand up and say, no, I support having this energy industry in my backyard and this is why. So we're looking for people that are willing to um, you know, do an interview, um, write an op-ed, testify at a hearing. There's a number of different ways that you can get involved. We'll help you along the way, but we want to hear your authentic story and we want to elevate those voices because that's what I think matters. Too often, it feels like we aren't heard back in DC. You know, it's a long way away and there's uh, just a natural, I think, tendency to say, well, that's the industry. Of course, they're going to say that. So the more that, that we can have those other voices also stand up, um, I'm hopeful that they will be heard. How, how do you intend? So you've got this website and you're collecting um, those who are willing to, to share their thoughts and feelings, um, those who are affected in some way by oil and gas, whether they're in the industry or, or part of servicing that industry, or like you said, part of the supply chain that, that services those who service the industry. Right, right. Um, uh, you you collect those who are willing to say something, willing to write something. Um, how do you then 
elevate that those voices. Right. There's lots of different ways that we can do that. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities coming up. Just last Friday, for example, um, the House Natural Resources Committee, Republican members held a hearing where they had testimony from individuals in each Western state about what this has meant for them. Um, lots of folks that had been impacted by um, the cancellation of Keystone XL, for example. Um, from Utah, Representative Moore had um, the, the mayor of Roosevelt on who talked about the impacts to the local community here and uh, the impacts that it's having on unemployment here to put some some faces to these statistics. So, you know, we'll, we'll be rolling things out in terms of media. We'll be using social media. Um, I know the state of Utah is going to uh, plan to hold some hearings on what these federal policies mean. Some of our legislative leadership is looking to put together a series of hearings on what does this mean for the state of Utah? What does this mean for jobs? What is this going to mean for your power bill? Um, and then our our federal delegation back in D.C. has also been phenomenal uh, in supporting us and providing opportunities where we can really elevate those voices. I, I think we just need to find every opportunity we can to to speak up and say what this really means rather than have other people tell our story for us. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd, I'd like to jump tracks just for a second because there was a couple of things that we had talk, been talking about earlier when it came to executive orders that uh, I wanted to make sure because I uh, I know that there'll be questions about them. Um, when when the executive orders very first came out, one of the big things was uh, the Keystone Pipeline, mm -hmm. um, Keystone XL pi Pipeline, and and the the revoking of the permit allowing it to be built. Um, if I'm not mistaken, well, I'll. I'll have you say the words instead. You tell me what was the purpose of the Keystone Pipeline and how does having that shut down affect Utah? Sure. For Utah, it's a little bit of a, a nuanced impact, to be honest, right? Um, so Keystone was going to be bringing in uh, crude oil from Canada down to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is a competition, right? That's a right. competition for producers right. in the U.S. That's how does it affect us? Yeah. Sure, sure. But it does impact us. It's just another example of the administration with a swipe of a pen waving away a decade of studies, a decade of permits with no justification. And if you can do it to Keystone, hmm. what else can you do it to? Okay. On a more specific level, we, we did have um, welders and pipe fitters, um, a, a steel company that were actively engaged in um, product supply or employment with okay. Keystone that had contracts dry up literally overnight literally overnight. Mm. Um, so it's it's been challenging, but I think the precedent that it sets is is more troubling or the, the most troubling. Yeah, because like you said, um, if they target in on Keystone Pipeline, what could be next targeted? And how do you know whether or not your 10-year plan is going to last any longer than this year? Right. You uh, know, you've gone through consultation, you've gone through years mm -hmm. of, of public meetings and studies, and those aren't cheap, right? Um, someone has invested a lot of money assuming a certain certainty that with a swipe of a pen, that approval, that permit you thought you had is gone. Yeah. What, what's what's some of the biggest pushback that you hear about um, from those who are in favor of these executive orders, at least specifically when it comes to you time? Wondering if if there's any any um, yeah, just pushback. Yeah, I mean, obviously. The, the, the 
biggest push for this is about climate change and about air quality. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I I don't disagree with that at all, um, particularly on the air quality perspective. So I get that the, the, the position is we need to take swift action to address what we see as, you know, a very immediate threatening problem. Okay. Where I have trouble with that is, again, we are technology companies. We are innovators. Tell us specifically what you want us to do and give us a chance to do it mm-hmm. rather than just trying to to basically cut our legs out from underneath of us. Because it's also short-sighted. It's not solving the problem, Right. right. So, so I'm, I'm wondering what would have been the um, the reaction, do you think, if if the executive order instead of no new leases was you've got to get air quality to this level? Well, you're seeing that already happening today, right? We have challenges right here in the Uinta Basin with ozone. Um, mm-hmm. We do have air quality challenges. You have seen investment in the basin already that has been voluntarily based, and we're going to see more of it in the years ahead to reduce those emissions. And if you look larger scale, methane emissions, that's a problem. I fully understand that there is room for improvement there as an industry. I'm not saying that we do everything perfectly. We certainly don't. And there's been innovation and improvement throughout the history and the evolution Mm. of the industry, just like with any other industry, right? So. There's um, a group through um, API, um, which is a national oil and gas trade association called the Environmental Partnership. And Mm -hmm. it's an entirely voluntarily based group that is really setting the standard for how we can reduce methane emissions. What are best practices? What is the toolkit? What is the methodology that can be used? So those things are happening. If we need to move more quickly on those things, that's a discussion to be had. And, and we're going to see that. I mean, methane rolls are certainly coming um, and soon that that's going to be coming. But I think that if the conversation had been uh, a little bit more proactive and solution oriented rather than just trying to get rid of an industry, mm-hmm. we'd be in a very different place. And again, I don't think that that we need to um, choose winners and losers here. I don't think that we need to say that we need to get rid of the oil and gas industry so that we can allow a green future to grow. Those two things can both happen. You don't have to kill one at the expense of the other. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that sentiment um, is primarily what, what I've gotten from our entire conversation is this idea that um, in order to fix if they're, if that's the right word, um, what's happening right now uh, between political parties and between differences of opinion when it comes to both climate and energy needs would be to simply have better communication between those groups, open and honest communication instead of shutting down uh, either side simply based off of which side of the aisle you're on. Yeah. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? I mean, we've seen this in politics that the extremes are getting more extreme. There's less real dialogue in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is getting concerning that we're making such important policy decisions based um, on a, a very, in my view, and of course I'm biased, full disclosure, but sure. um, short-sighted set of data. We're not looking about what the real implications of all of these actions are going to be. We need to we need to think about this a little more carefully. Mm-hmm. You know, one fun example of this is just in 2020, 
um, there was a bill passed called the Great American Outdoors Act, which um, Vice President Harris voted in favor of. And what it does is it provides funding for national parks from oil and gas production. Um, so it provides up to 1.3 1.3, 1.4 annually um, for national parks. And in a true show of politics, rather than good decision making based on data, um, the, the amounts that were going to be distributed from those funds to different states was just recently announced. Utah is going to get 7.3 million. None of it for national parks, all of it going to BLM, while we see New York is getting 50 million. Virginia is getting 200 and, uh, sorry, 24 uh, million. Uh, Oregon is getting 12.5 million. Hmm. So we are the fourth and fifth largest natural gas and oil producer on federal lands. We're contributing significantly to that fund. We have five national parks and yet we're getting almost nothing in national park funding to address a several hundred million dollar backlog and maintenance needs hmm. um, and some of the highest visitorship rates in our national parks. And to me, that looks like a partisan decision. When you've got New York, Oregon and Washington getting massive park funding amounts, they have no oil and gas industry or very limited that pay into that fund. And you have Utah, which is a very red state. We all know that mm -hmm. getting almost no national park funding, even though we're contributing so much into that fund. It's just another example of this is a partisan decision. This is mm -hmm. not a decision based on data. Okay. And getting, and getting back to our, our fix, which is let's have more people who are willing to speak out about their support um, and going to uh, the website, say it again for me. UtahPetroleum.org. Right, for the Utah Energy uh, United Initiative. Um, what else for our audience, for the UNA Basin, what else would you, would you want to leave with them? Talk to people, talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, talk to your kids, soccer coach. Um, I think that we are an industry of people that just put our heads down and we work really hard. We're not used to promoting what we do. We're not comfortable getting a pat on the back. We're not, you know, as vocal as I think that we should be as an industry in terms of what we bring to the state, what we bring to our local economy, what we really honestly bring to the world in terms of safe, secure, reliable, and um, clean energy production. So uh, get out of your comfort zone a little bit and, and be proud of what you do and speak up about it. All right. Well, thank you. This has been a, a very fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking your time to come and talk with us today. Uh, once again, this was uh, Ricky Renko Browning, the president of Utah Petroleum Association. We want to thank you all for listening as well or to for viewing the Channel V6 podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can do that at podcasts at channelv6.com. Once again, thank you for taking the time and uh, thank you all for watching. Thank you.